Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series called Prayer, Power, and Wisdom, and we hope that this blesses you. If you're looking for more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org. So dads, um, this is Father's Day, and I, our, my, the message is not a Father's Day message per se, although it certainly applies to all of us, but um, I just was in thinking about this morning and knowing it was coming up, um, just doing a little bit of reading and had some things come through in my feed there, and so I, thought, I saw these statistics, and I just wanted you to hear this, Dad. Dads matter. You matter. What, what you do matters. Your job is an important job as a father. And um, so just look at these statistics. It bears out. 90% homeless and runaways are from fatherless homes. 85% of fatherless kids exhibit behavioral disorders. Uh, 85% of youth in prison are from fatherless homes. 75% of rapists, they actually come from fatherless homes. Uh, 71% of the high school dropouts um, have no father in the house. So dads play a pretty important role, don't they? It's a huge connection between fatherless homes and many of these ills that we see in our society and a lot of the brokenness. Uh, Willie Richardson is a, is a writer. He contributes to Patriot Post magazine and others. He says this can, it, there's some, some articles, you know, a lot of people are talking these days about gun violence and so forth, and, and this article points the connection between gun violence and fatherlessness. Willie says the connection between gun violence and the absence of fathers is irrefutable. Um, Cicero, I just like this quote, but uh, I throw it in there. The family is the nursery of the commonwealth. Cicero is the Roman, um, I think he was a Roman philosopher, wasn't he? The, the next slide has a quote from Barack Obama. President Obama said this a few years back. He said, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crimes, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. And the foundation of our community are weaker because of it. That's something. And I like this last quote by Billy Graham. Got to end with Billy. Billy says this, fathers are, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. So all that to say, dads, we appreciate you. We need you. We're grateful for you. Um, so keep up the good work, dads. And um, we pray for God to bless you and your work. May you be successful in leading your homes. Um, this morning, we get into Scripture, and we're going to continue in our series, Prayer, Power, and Wisdom. And so let's get started with the memory verse. We've been working on memorizing Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11. So would you please Say this out loud with me, okay? Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. So you didn't say that very loud. Let's do it again. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. I want you to understand this summer how important your blessing is to the city where you live. And one of the blessings that you bring to the city where you live is wisdom. Wisdom is having the mind of God about a matter, about an issue. And as the people of God, you have access to the mind of God. 1 Corinthians says that you actually have the mind of Christ. 
And so wisdom is accessible to you as the people of God, and that directly benefits the places where we live. And this morning, we want to emphasize the, the power of wisdom. And my prayer is this morning that as we see the power of wisdom, that we're going to that something will ignite in our hearts and that we'll begin to say, oh, I want that. I've got to have some of that. So we see the power of wisdom. We want to start with Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It's the passage that we read a couple of weeks ago, and it really has served as the foundation for our whole series this summer. As I said, it really is what started me thinking about the power of wisdom about six months ago. But I want, I want to read it again because it's such an important passage. We just have one selection from it there, but if you want to read along with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting with verse 13. Solomon is writing, King Solomon, and he says, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now, there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, Solomon, in his typical... Uh, sour milk style in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is sort of a, of a downer of a book at times. And so you might read this and you think, okay, so is he saying that wisdom is no good because people ignore it? That's not really what he's saying. He's really just saying, honestly, that wisdom is, is quiet. It's easy to miss it. It's easy to forget it. That it needs to be a focus in our lives. I want the wisdom of God. I want the mind of God. Because, because there's a lot of noise. Would you agree? A lot of noise in our lives. And there's a lot of people telling you to do this, to do that. A lot of people trying to give you advice, saying, follow me, I got the way. There's a lot of that out there. And, and all that's loud. And the wisdom of God is quiet. It's unassuming sometimes. It's, it's easy to miss if you're not genuinely seeking it. So that's really the thrust that Solomon has here. And then the second part of this is that wisdom is powerful. Do you see how powerful it is? He saved one poor man, saved his whole city with wisdom. It's that powerful. Now, I found another passage in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 20, and I kind of think it's cool because 2 Samuel chapter 20 might be the story that's behind Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So would you turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20? I mean, I'm not saying it is exactly. It's a great big maybe, okay? But it's feasible that, that what we see here in 2 Samuel 20 could be the story that Solomon's thinking about as he writes about the poor but wise man who saved this city with wisdom. Tracking? So let's go back and look at 2 Samuel chapter 20 and see what it is. And as we do, we're going to see the power of wisdom at work and learn a few other really important things. Here's a background to the story while you're looking it up. 2 Samuel chapter 20. It's this. King David is the king. Now, do you know King David's relationship to King Solomon? He was Solomon's 
dad. Exactly. So, so David and then Solomon. So now Solomon's the king. He's writing Ecclesiastes 9. 2 Samuel, his dad's the king. 2 Samuel chapter 20. Follow? David goes through one of the darkest periods of his life. There was a coup staged against him by his own son, Absalom. Absalom virtually succeeded temporarily and chased David out of the city, and it was a whole big dark mess. In the process, Absalom ended up getting killed, something that was not at all what David had asked for. David had told Joab, the general of his army, I want you to spare Absalom's life. Even though Absalom had, you know, done this wicked, terrible thing, but David, you know, the heart of a dad, I think, he's like, okay, my son, I got to deal with my son, but I don't want to kill him. I think any, any dad could recognize that. And so David asks Joab, he tells the army specifically, spare my son. What does Joab do? Joab, the general, kills Absalom. Bad deal. On any given day, that's treason. Joab should be put to death for that action. Don't you agree? He violated a king, the king's direct command. He killed Absalom. The whole thing is a big mess. The, the battle is over. The dust is starting to settle. And now the, the nation is bringing David back to Jerusalem to reestablish him on the throne in Jerusalem. And more trouble brews. See, what happened was this. You've got 12 tribes in Israel. Um, think of a tribe as being like a state. It's not exact, but it's maybe close for our purposes. You have, we have 50 states in the United States of America. Israel had 12 tribes. So the 10 of the tribes in Israel are considered the north, and two of the tribes are considered the south part of Israel. Following that, Jerusalem is a city in the south, in the two tribes in the south. And so the two tribes in the south bring David back from the battle, back from exile, and they, be, and they bring him to be reestablished on the throne in Jerusalem. The ten tribes in the north, that really rankled their shorts. They got mad, and it was a big mess. And we come to chapter 20, verse 1. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet, and he shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So you see what happened? Now we've got another coup. So bad to worse, doesn't it? It's a really tough, dark time for David and for the kingdom of Israel. David gets back to Jerusalem. The dust sort of settles, takes care of some business. And verse 6, here's what happens. David says to Abishai, now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. David calls up Abishai to lead the army. But Joab was the general. Do you know why David would call of Abishai and not Joab? Exactly. Joab killed his son. And so David's, you know, David should have put Joab to death. Instead, he demotes him. 
essentially, and he makes Abishai the general of the army instead. You tracking with this? But Joab is somehow still in the mix because while the army is going to get this guy Sheba, Joab does a little bit of backstabbing, literally, and next thing you know, he's the general again. So we come to chapter 20, you come to verse 15. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba at this little city called Abel Beth Makkah. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the, other, the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman, what kind of woman? Wise woman. Not just any woman, a wise woman, called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she, said, she asked, are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice. What kind of advice? Her wise advice. And they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. So do you see what's going on here? Joab is muscled his way back into power as the general of the army. Somehow he shoved out Abishai in the process. And now he's got the army. They're coming after this guy, Sheba who is guilty of treason. And in order to get Sheba, what are they doing? They're effectively trying to destroy an entire city. They've got the battering rams against the wall, battering, trying to knock down the wall. And I don't know about you, but I picture this woman being kind of about, you know, four foot 11, pretty sassy, grandma type, like don't mess with grandma kind of woman. I don't know how you imagine her. That's kind of how I picture her. She's got a little sass in her, and, she, and, she's, and she's, you know, she's in her house, I don't know, making noodles or something, and she hears the commotion outside, and the, you know, the wall's shaking, and she's like, what the what? And she goes out, and she sees what's happening, and I can just see her with her hand. She's on top of the wall, hands on her hips. Hey, where's Joab? And she calls him out. It's this, this woman's, the moxie this woman has is amazing, right? She calls out Joab. And, and the fact that Joab listens to her says something. I mean, this woman is like, she has taken over. Realize, she stopped an entire army. The armies, one minute they're battering the wall down, and this woman stands up and says, I want to talk to Joab right now. And the whole army stops. It's crazy. 
And she, and she goes, what are you doing? And Joab tells her, and she goes, you're destroying our whole city. We're like a mother in Israel. What are you doing? We're like the peaceful city. We're, we're a good city. And you're trying to destroy the whole city for this one turkey? And, and Joab says, well, I just want the one guy. She says, we'll get it there. And she goes and takes care of business, doesn't she? <laughs> Next thing you know, you see this head coming over the wall, <laughs> rolling towards Joab's feet. End of the battle. Joab wraps up the army. They pack up and they go home. City saved. It's amazing. In this story, we see an example of the power of wisdom. We also see an example of the contrast between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Here's Joab. He's operating with earthly wisdom. Joab is, he's backstabbing. He's politically maneuvering. He's making power grabs. He's coming after it with violence. His solution to finding one man is to destroy a whole city. Like, okay, Joab, surely there's a better solution than that. And yet that's not what he goes for. He's tearing the whole city down to get one guy. You see that? Contrast that with one wise, maybe sassy woman who, who in one decision, think about the power of wisdom. With one decision, she was able to satisfy justice. She brought Sheba to justice. He was guilty of treason. Justice needed to be served. So she, she satisfies justice. She brings peace. She, she saves a bunch of innocent people. Who knows how many people would have been killed in the city if Joab had had his way to get Sheba. So she saves lives. She stops a whole, a whole war so with one wise choice. Do you see the power of wisdom? And like I said, it, it may or may not be, but I tend to think that this story in 2 Samuel 20 is maybe what Solomon was thinking about when he was writing Ecclesiastes 9. Because Ecclesiastes 9, in there, Solomon is an old man. By then, his, da his dad David is long dead, and Solomon has been on the throne for 40 years. This event in 2 Samuel 20 probably would have happened when Solomon was a, a young man or a kid. And so for him, the detail, and he would have not been there. Solomon wasn't actually in the battle. So he would have heard about it from stories told to him. And I'm just thinking he's, as an old man, you know, the details are a little fuzzy, but he's writing Ecclesiastes and he's thinking, you know, I remember one time there was this city that was being destroyed by a king and there was one wise man probably should have said woman, but one wise man who saved the whole city. You know, I don't know. It could be, it might not be. But the point is, wisdom is that powerful. And there's a vast difference between what sells itself as wisdom in the world and what actually is godly wisdom. James chapter 3 lays this out for us pretty clearly. The, well, let me, uh, before I get to that, let me just, here's some other things that the Bible says about wisdom. Look at wisdom. The tongue of the wise brings healing, Proverbs 12, 8. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, Proverbs 2, 12. 
Wisdom will save you. Wisdom preserves the life of its owner. The one who has wisdom, their life is preserved. Ecclesiastes 7.19, wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. So the Bible's pretty clear. If you, man, woman of God, are operating in the wisdom of God, you will walk in the power of God. Wisdom is powerful. So what is the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom? Just because it looks and sounds right and feels right doesn't necessarily mean that it is the wisdom of God. So how do I know the difference between the wisdom of the world, what sells itself as wisdom, and true wisdom, the wisdom of God? James chapter 3, verses 13 and 18. If you would, please turn your Bibles with me there. I want to read this. James chapter 3. Verses 13 through 18. James has this to say about it. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote-unquote, does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James does a pretty good job, actually, of laying out the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. I put them on a two lines here for us so we could see them more clearly. But look at what earthly wisdom is. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, boasting, denying truth, disorder, every evil practice. Essentially, earthly wisdom is self-centered. It's, I mean, if I'm following my own heart and you're following your own heart, it's only a matter of time before our hearts clash. Does that not make sense? And so, so earthly wisdom is a setup for disorder, every evil practice, division, strife, envy. If I'm following my own heart, it's easy enough to be jealous for what you have it's easy enough to drive myself, selfish ambition. It's what I want, what feels good to me right now, which of course easily leads to boasting because this is what I have accomplished and this is what I do. It's all about me, see? This is earthly wisdom. Joab is a great example. I think that's why that 2 Samuel 20 passage is so important for us because when you think earthly wisdom... Think Joab, backstabbing, going against the king's command, doing what he wants, trying to destroy a whole city to find one guy. This is Joab, political maneuvering, it's me. And then you have heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is, look at it, pure, peace-loving, who doesn't want this? Considerate, <laughs> submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial, it's sincere, like heavenly wisdom is 
other-centered. It's I'm thinking only about what's best for other people in this situation. What is best in this situation? Not what's going to feel the best or not what's going to satisfy my flesh right now, but rather what is best in this situation. Earthly wisdom only sees what's right in front of its nose. It's immediate. Heavenly wisdom is actually able to say, you know, I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to do these things because down there comes the reward. Earthly wisdom says, I want it now. Do you see the difference between these two? Heavenly, earthly wisdom, earthly wisdom, you know, heavenly wisdom is, is, yeah, well, always thinking about what's best for someone else. It unites people. Friends, what's best is not always just approving of someone's behavior. Our, our culture seems to think that that's what it has to be. Like, if I'm going to love you, I have to approve what you do. I can love you and still tell the truth about the fact that you're destroying your life. See, but I can do that in love. Wisdom wants what's best for the other person. And heaven's wisdom is full of good fruit. Do you see that? Full of, it looks like something. Heaven's wisdom actually works, see? Um, heaven's wisdom is having moral authority. Do you know what moral authority is? Moral authority is a life that backs up the message. In other words, in other words if, if I'm trying to tell you how to raise your kids, but my kids are a wreck, I don't have moral authority. If, if I'm trying to tell you how to manage your finances, but I'm deep in debt in a hole, and my finances are a wreck, I don't have moral authorities. Moral authority is the authority that I have based on a life well lived. See, a person walking in heaven's wisdom carries moral authority. Just because somebody can, you know, write a book or go on a talk show, it doesn't make them an expert about something. Moral authority says, I, I want to find somebody who actually is doing this well and learn from them. And so wisdom, heaven's wisdom, actually is full of good fruit. It looks like something. And then he says it's sincere. I like that last quality. Heaven's wisdom is sincere, meaning it stands the test of time. There's no cracks in it. Like you're not going to walk in wisdom and then five years from now find out that it was a mistake. You walk in God's wisdom, it will work, it will succeed, and you'll be glad that you did. It's sincere. Proverbs 28 verse 19 says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Godly wisdom doesn't follow the whims, the latest trends, the latest fad. Just because everybody else is worked up over it doesn't mean that godly wisdom gets worked up over it. Does this make sense? Because godly wisdom is sincere. It stands the test of time. It rises above all of that. So if wisdom is this powerful, then don't we want to ask how we can have it? Wouldn't you like to have the mind of the Lord about everything in your life? So how do I get the mind of the Lord about anything in my life? Well, the first step is, ready? It's really hard. You got to ask for it. 
Ask for it. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously without finding fault. I love that. Because you know what that means? You don't have to be educated to have wisdom. You just need to ask God. It means you don't have to be smart to have wisdom. You just need to ask God. You don't have to be well-connected or anything else to have wisdom. You just simply need to ask God. He gives to all generously without finding fault. Now, there's a couple of things that go into asking God. There's a negative and there's a positive. The negative in asking God is this. It means I'm not seeking wisdom from someplace else. I'm asking him. So I'm turning my back on other potential sources of wisdom, which I don't believe there are any, but let's just say, you know, I'm turning my back on those and I'm seeking God for wisdom. Does this make sense? So there's a negative in that. But you know, there's all kinds of other sources that are telling you that they're good for wisdom. Um, but we need to learn the example from Eve, Genesis chapter 3. You know how this worked? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, standing at the tree, the knowledge of evil, of good, the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm talking too fast. My mouth is running out. So, you know, and the, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 tells us this. Eve saw the fruit, that it looked good, and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And she ate it. And we've been in trouble ever since, haven't we? Isn't that interesting? It looked like it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So just because it looks like wisdom, sounds like wisdom, feels like wisdom, doesn't mean that it is wisdom. Follow? So the first thing I need to do is to turn my back on any other source of wisdom other than God himself. That's the negative. And then the positive is I ask God. You know, Psalms 110 verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to ask God means I'm actually respecting God in his role as God. I believe that he knows what he's talking about. I believe that what he has to say is true. I believe that it's worth listening to. It's worth obeying. Follow that? That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a respect for what God has to say. And so I'm asking him for wisdom out of respect for what God has to say because I believe that what God has to say about any given subject is the best thing to say about that subject. Amen? See, that's the fear of the Lord. See, I, I respect what God says, which means then I'm settled in my mind that whatever God tells me about this subject, that's what I will do. See, uh, the fear of the Lord means I respect what God has to say. So if God says, hey, listen, the only person you sleep with is your wife, I have to believe that this is wisdom and this is coming from the heart of God and this is the way that it should be. And that settles it for me. If I hear God say, hey, there's only two genders, that's all I made, male and female, then I believe that this is exactly the right way to go, that this is wisdom from the heart of God. See, I have the fear of the Lord. I respect what he says about any given subject. You following it? I know that there's other opinions out there, 
lots of other opinions, but his is the only one that matters because this is the only one that's right. This is the fear of the Lord. And this is what's going into asking God for wisdom. So to ask God for wisdom, I turn my back on other sources. I seek him. And then the second thing is I value wisdom. How do I get wisdom? I've got to value it. It has to be important. Is it important? Do you want wisdom? Um, Proverbs says this, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. says, wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. Wisdom is supreme, so do what, he says? Get it. Get wisdom, even if it costs everything you have. And that's not the only time in Proverbs where he says that. Like, there's other times in the Bible where it actually says, man, if, you gotta, if, if it costs everything, if you spend your whole life seeking it, it's worth it. You've got to give everything you've got to this cause to get the wisdom of God, the mind of God about something. I think if this, if this verse, Proverbs 4, 7, and 8, were being written today, you would hear many people write it this way. They would say, your feelings are supreme, therefore follow your feelings. It'll cost every ounce of your integrity, but follow your feelings. Esteem them, and everyone will pay attention to you. Embrace your feelings, and everyone will tell you how brave you are, and we'll all go to hell. Now, we need to start saying that wisdom is supreme. Not my feelings, not your feelings. I want the heart of God. That's what leads us. We need to start seeking it. It'll probably be hard, but the end results will be so much better. So the second part to asking God for wisdom, to getting wisdom, is to actually value it. I want wisdom above all else. And then the third part is this, I need to seek godly counsel. I'm not going to find wisdom by myself. My perspective is skewed. Even my perspective on the Bible is skewed. Boy, I've learned that about myself. You know, I've been around the Bible my whole life. I'm pretty good at using Bible verses to justify my behavior. Anybody with me in that? I can find you a Bible verse to back me up. My perspective is skewed. I need the perspective of other people. I need the input of other people. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says pride. There's a third slide here. There's, there we go. It says pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 13, 20. I like this one. We, we made our kids memorize this when they were little. It says he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So how do I gain wisdom? I seek godly advice. I hang out with those who are wise. I find those who are doing it well, and I learn from them. This is where wisdom is found. It's found in seeking it out. Remember, you look for those who have the good fruit of wisdom, and then you ask them for help. So here's a challenge this week. Let's, let's apply this. Let me just summarize this real quick. How do we get wisdom? Here, here's just a quick summary slide. First, we let go of my own feelings, my own opinions, my own wants. I, I, and I'm, I'm just I'm letting it go. I'm coming to God with a blank slate. Because you agree it's easy to come to God with kind of what I already want. Have you ever done that? 
And, and then I, I hold that, and then I tend to see everything that happens like it justifies what I want. You tracking with that? So really the first step is I got to let go of that. I'm coming to God with an open heart, open mind. I want what God has. So I'm leaving my own feelings and opinions and agendas and wants. I'm leaving those aside. Part two, I'm asking God for wisdom. I'm seeking him, God, I want your mind which means I'm turning my back on any other source for wisdom, and I'm seeking him for wisdom. And then I'm also saying, God, I believe that whatever it is that you have to say about this subject, that's the right way to do it, even if it's going to be hard for me. But I believe that this is the right way to do it because you're saying it. Follow? And then the third step is I embrace the wisdom. I embrace it, which means I'll do it. I'll do what you tell me to do. Because remember, wisdom is about application. Wisdom is not just knowing the right thing to do, it's actually doing it. If all I do is know the right thing to do, well, that's just a nice idea. But wisdom is about putting it into practice, which means I got some work to do. Have you ever noticed that? It's not always easy, can I tell you? Not easy to follow wisdom. Every bone in my body, every ounce of my flesh wants to do what's easy, wants to do what feels right to it. But I can tell you, wisdom is often the exact opposite of what my flesh is crying out for. You tracking with that? So it's difficult. So I've got to make a conscious decision that says, okay, God, I will, I will obey it. And then fourth, I ask for advice about what to do from someone who's already doing it well. I look around and I find that. And guess what? We have such a great advantage here in our church body. Because I, I love that, that, you know, nobody's an expert about everything. Have you noticed that? Unless that's you. If you are, I'd love to meet you if you're an expert about everything. But nobody's an expert about everything. So, and the beauty of Christian community is, you know what, so some of you are really great parents, we can learn from you about parenting, and others are really great financial managers, we can learn about you, learn from you about financial management, some of you are really great at, you know, at, 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 at navigating the cultural problems and issues, you know, I want to learn from you how to do that. Tracking, it's cool that we have this opportunity available to us within the body of Christ. So here's what we want to do. I want to end with this. Let's be practical this week. Let's try it. Let's pick an issue. Pick an issue, any issue, something in your own life that you need God's mind about, you need wisdom about. Just think through your own experience. What, you know, maybe something with your kids. Maybe there's a job decision that you're seeking God's wisdom about. Maybe it's a move. You know, I feel like I need to move somewhere, but I don't know. So you're seeking the Lord about moving. That's legit. What, what are you seeking the Lord about? I want you to get it in your mind right now. See if you can, because we're going to do this this week. This is going to be a legit exercise, okay? So step one with that is this. Ready? God... I'm going to let go of all my own thoughts and all my own feelings and my emotions and my agenda about this, and I'm going to come to you with a willing and an open heart. I mean, God, I, you know, and you could even confess it. You know, God, I, I kind of would want, you know, I want a new truck, but do you want me to have a new truck? I'm seeking you about a new truck. So I'm going to ask the Lord, okay, you know what? I'm going to come open-hearted, 
about this. Whatever you say to do, Lord, follow it. Step two, God, please give me your mind about this. You've told me in James chapter three, James chapter one, verse five, if anyone asks for wisdom, you'll give it. So Lord, I'm gonna stand on that and I'm asking you for wisdom about what to do regarding this issue. And then step three, God, I choose today to obey the direction that you give, even if it's hard and even if it goes against what my flesh wants to do. So God, I choose to obey your direction about this. And I'm going to wait until I get your direction about it. And then step four, God, to whom would you want me to speak about this? Who's doing it well? Show me, Lord, so that I can pick their brain and, and get some more understanding about it and get some wisdom about how to do this, how to tackle this issue. You follow? This is how you get the mind of the Lord about anything. And so I just want to encourage you to practice it this week and talk about it in your life group when you get together. I mean, hopefully by then, maybe you'll have some victories. My prayer is that God will actually give us some, some short-term victories, real quick, some quick ones, that you'll see this at work and be encouraged because some things are a lot harder and they take longer to work through. But maybe the Lord will just give us a couple easy ones to get started so we can see these principles at work and then be encouraged to keep on going. So that's my prayer. So let's bow our heads and pray, okay, as we close. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.